Welcome to the Message Podcast from Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can find us on most major podcast outlets. Visit cotnaz.org for more info. Our worship services stream weekly on Sundays at 9 a.m. on YouTube. You can also find our live stream at cotnaz.org. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. We have a campus near Harrisonburg at 1871 Boyers Road. We also have a campus in East Rockingham at 414 South East Side Highway in Elkton. In addition, our Spanish-speaking campus meets on Sundays at 11.45 a.m. at that same 1871 Boyers Road location. Check out our website, cotnas.org, for more info. I want to talk to you quickly about weeds. And yes, I said weeds with an S. Some of y'all got a little nervous. Uh, weeds, they're seemingly harmless, right? Just a few doesn't seem to hurt anything. Ignore them and pull them up later. That's what I tell myself. Some of them actually are somewhat nice to look at. Sometimes it's hard to tell what's a weed and what's actually a nice plant or flower or herb that's growing until when it gets out of hand. Why is that? It's because weeds are invasive. When you allow a few, they'll quickly spread like fire, or better yet, they'll spread like weeds. Some can even produce poison. They must be uprooted. And if you are into gardening, you know more about this than I do. They must be uprooted, dealt with from the root, or they threaten to certainly return. You can weed eat all you want, but those weeds are coming back. And they'll continue to choke out the life of the surrounding plants and steal that which nourishes what is healthy. And so, um, a quick story. Uh, there's a little brick house up here right by the light as you're pulling out of Boyers onto Port. And in that house lives a little old lady. And uh, someone told me her name after the first service. Um, but uh, she is faithful at pulling weeds. I'm talking for years. The only time I've seen this lady outside is when I drive by and she is bent over. And she's a bent over old lady. And maybe it's because she's pulled so many weeds. But this hand's full of weeds. And there she is pulling weeds. I mean, it never fails. If she's outside, she is pulling weeds. And I've, and I've noted it. And I've, just, I've, I've noticed it. And uh, it's, it's just uh, interesting to me that how, how faithful she is at pulling weeds. And sometimes, I mean, it's days in a row. I think she's pulling grass. Uh, I think that that has just become habitual in her life, that she's pulling those weeds. And so a couple months ago, and I know it's a couple months ago because I wrote it on a sticky note when this happened. Um, that's how I remember things. Um, I was driving by, coming to work early in the morning. I'm not just minding my own business, thinking about something else. And I'm driving, and I look over as I pass to come in this way. And there she is, early in the morning, pulling weeds. And I said to myself, wasn't really talking to God. I was, I was just in my car driving. I just said to myself out loud, I, I said, who in the world could care that much about weeds? And it was one of those moments, and maybe you've had one like this. It was like the voice of God spoke audibly in my car. Uh, I didn't hear it, but I heard it as loud as could be. And the Spirit of God said, I do. I care that much about weeds. So welcome back uh, to our series here in Revelation, the seven churches. I'm Pastor Billy. Um, If you're just joining us for the first time, uh, I serve as the pastor of discipleship here at Church of the Nazarene and have the privilege of bringing uh, the word to you today. I'm going to quickly review. This is the fourth week of our series. Uh, uh, I'm going to take you through the first three weeks as we dive into um, today. The first week, we took a look at Revelation, the book, the letter, uh, this revelation of Jesus Christ that the Apostle John wrote down, and we looked at the introduction. And we really just talked about uh, the fact that revelation is from Jesus and it's all about Jesus from beginning to end because Jesus is the beginning and the end of all things. And so then we dove uh, the next week uh, into chapter 2 and 3 is where we're going to be at throughout this series. And Jesus uh, speaks to John to write down uh, seven letters to seven churches that make up Asia Minor at that time. And so the first week, the first church, uh, we were at Ephesus. And Ephesus is this church. And they got all this stuff they're doing. um, uh, They're doing a lot of things good. They're doing them well. And they're doing uh, all the right things. But they're doing them for the wrong reason. Jesus says, you've lost the love that you had at first. 
you're going through the religious motion, but there is no relational intimacy. And so he says, uh, uh, come back, turn back to me with the love you had at first. And then last week, we look at the letter to the church in Smyrna, and I had the privilege of bringing that word to our church family at East Rock, and um, we looked at the church in Smyrna last week, and he, th- these people, he has nothing, Jesus has nothing negative to say to this group of people. They're facing persecution, the persecution is going to get more intense, and Jesus essentially says, do not fear, be faithful. Do not fear, be faithful, even if it leads to death. And so here we are this week, and we're looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. A little bit about Pergamum, and I'm going to move quickly here. Pergamum was located about 55 miles north of Smyrna and 15 miles inland from the sea. The name Pergamum means citadel. Uh, the city, uh, if you look at it online or look up a video, YouTube, it is quite remarkable. It was built on the slope of a rising hill. They had like the steepest theater in ancient uh, Rome in that, in that time. It was known, Pergamon was known as the first city to host a temple to the emperor Caesar Augustus um, and to Rome. The imperial cult was central there. Uh, the city was abounding in altars to many gods and goddesses of the Greek and Roman culture. The city was especially known as a center for the worship of the deity known as Asclepios. I, can't, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Represented by a serpent. His symbol literally was, uh, this, this deity's symbol was a staff with serpents intertwined. Asclepios was the god of healing and knowledge. There was a medical school there at his temple in Pergamum. Because of this famous temple to the Roman god of healing, sick and diseased people from all over the empire would flock to Pergamum for relief. Listen to this, listen to this bizarre practice um, to see what's a little bit going on in this city. Uh, one of the healing practices was that sufferers would be put into this trance-like state and allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. And in the temple, there were many snakes. And in the night, the sufferer, as they're in this trance-like state, they might be touched by one of these snakes as he slithers across them and glides on the ground of which those would be laying, those who were suffering. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself, and the touch was held to bring health and healing. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a horror movie. Even the hospital, though, as we can see, was saturated with pagan idolatry. In Pergamum contained the largest library in the ancient world, only smaller than the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. And so this was an educated city. They were well educated. It was a wealthy and prosperous city, and it was a city abounding with spiritual activity. However, we will see that it's certainly not holy. What we know about the church in Pergamum At some point in the recent past, we're going to see Antipas, the bishop there, was killed because of his faithfulness to Christ. And the lack of details around his death indicate that this was broad knowledge amongst those who belong to the church. And you'll get an idea as we look here at the text of the situation that the church finds itself when Jesus refers to Pergamum as Satan's city. The reference there is to Satan's throne could have concerned the altar to Zeus that was there or simply the plethora of altars to many false gods and goddesses including to the Caesar of Rome who was held as Lord. This city is filled with demonic influence. And that's one reason Jesus will, you'll see, commend the church there for holding fast to the faith. They were literally surrounded by ungodly influences at every turn and every corner. Does that sound familiar? To summarize quickly, we looked at last week the church in Smyrna who is enduring this persecution. And um, uh, Jesus says to be faithful and I'm going to give you a little picture of what's going on in these Roman providences. Uh, Once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee he had performed his religious duty. All that the Christians living here had to do was to burn that pinch of incense, say Caesar is Lord, receive their certificate, and go away and worship as they pleased. The citizen was given a certificate valid for one year which allowed him to worship whatever god or gods they preferred with impunity. But that's precisely what the Christians would not do. They would give no man the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not even formally conform. And so those in Smyrna faced persecution even unto death as did some here in Pergamum. But we'll see that Pergamum has a deadlier problem present. Pastor Alan Jackson, he said this, he said, if we don't pause to hear what Jesus is saying, then we won't be prepared for what's ahead of us. 
So let's hear what Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. This will be on the screen behind me. You can look up the event in the YouVersion app. There's some notes in there if you would like to do that. Revelation 2 and verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord to his church today, to all who have ears to hear. You see, the problem, the problem Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. Amen. You see, the problem with the church at Pergamum was that they had let pagan influences creep into their faith and worship. They haven't completely renounced Jesus, but they aren't exclusively worshiping him either. We will see not everyone who simply says they're a Christian are Christians. And so I want to spend the time unpacking this letter to Pergamum, why it was relevant, what was happening. And then I want to look at our culture in America, the church in America, and even ask God to search us and our own lives to see if there is presence of compromise present. Verse 12 says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the ones of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And I hope you haven't missed that even in these letters to these churches, even Christ's introduction of himself to each church is in line with the message that he has to deliver to them. What Jesus uses as his introduction is important. Jesus doesn't waste words. So Jesus says, I am the one of who has the sharp double-edged sword. The term sword here may refer to the judicial right of inflicting capital punishment. They would have been familiar with the sword of Rome and the punishment that they held above their heads. Yet here, Christ has the double-edged sword. So the Christians of Pergamum are reminded from the lips of Jesus that Christ, not the Roman rulers, are the one who wields ultimate judicial authority. And this may bring to mind uh, the writing in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 here on the screen that says, For the word of God, his word right here, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so we've already found out that this sword is in fact the sword of Christ's mouth. His word is the sharp, double-edged sword. And so the doctrinal error that he's addressing in the church, the compromise of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans are going to be judged by the word of the Lord. And of the three introductions to the churches so far, this is the first negative introduction because the Pergamum church faced imminent judgment if they do not repent. The judgment that Jesus is warning about is not the second coming of his judgment. He's saying imminent judgment is looming if you do not repent of your compromise. And he continues, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. In Pergamum, two saviors competed with the one true savior. The first one we look at was the deity associated with the serpent, right? The one was said to be savior because of his healing power. And then there was Zeus also considered as a savior, not even to count Caesar of Rome. And so uh, there was this competing uh, spirituality. And so Jesus says, this is the place where Satan has his throne. And he continued though, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Where? Where Satan lives. 
And so here we get this, this uh, note about the martyred bishop of Pergamum. And it's the only reference to Antipas in the scriptures, uh, but his name literally means against all, which may tell us why he was a hero of the faith and lauded by Jesus himself here in this letter. So even though these Christians lived in such a difficult city, uh, the Christians of Pergamum held fast to their faith in Jesus. Let us not miss this, okay? I don't want you to miss this. Jesus praised the Christians of Pergamum because they did not deny his faith. And it's always important to make sure that the faith we're holding on to is the faith that belongs to Jesus. So it appears that many in Pergamum may perhaps have refused to burn that incense, burn that pinch of incense on the altar to the Godhead of Caesar. They may have refused. However, there's something more insidious happening in the church. And so while Jesus sees their faith and he commends it, he also sees the weeds of compromise that are growing and threatening the life of the church, which is his bride. Jesus says in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So despite their courageous stand against persecution, the believers in Pergamum were not faultless before the Lord. Satan had not been able to destroy them by coming as the roaring lion, but he was making inroads as the deceiving serpent. Church, be soberly aware today that that is still what he does today. Satan couldn't accomplish much by persecution because many did hold fast like Antipas. So Satan tried to accomplish his goals by using deception. Maybe it sounded something like this. No one else is making these sacrifices. They're enjoying themselves. God just wants to spoil your fun and take the pleasure out of life. Listen, it won't really matter if you cave on your morals a bit and give in this time. And on and on and on the liar goes. So I have something against you, Jesus says. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. If Revelation isn't confusing enough, now he brings in this story from the Old Testament. So now we go into numbers. And Jesus is critiquing the church acceptance here of false doctrine, false worldviews, by equating those teachers with Balaam and Balak. Who is this? Balak was a king of Moab who hired a pagan prophet named Balaam. And Balaam was really good in his day at cursing others for profit. He had made it, he had made it his life's prophet. That's what he did. He cursed others. And so Balak calls Balaam to curse the Israelites, God's people. Balaam was not able to curse them no matter how much he connived, no matter how much he deceived, no matter how much he tried to worm. He could not curse God's people. God actually made him bless the Israelites instead. So Balaam, the deceiver he was, convinced Balak the king to deceive the Israelite men and lead them into sin to compromise their devotion to God. After Balaam leaves Balak, the Israelite men engaged in immorality with the Moabite women. They sacrificed to their gods and they yoked themselves to the Baal Peor through sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes. These acts of sexual immorality and idolatry were directly attributed to the teachings of Balaam and his influence over the Israelites, over God's people. And so it's basically like this. He said, if they won't renounce their faith completely, just infect their ranks with worldliness and immorality and idolatry and declare it as freedom. And so in the same way, The believers of Pergamum are influenced by false prophets, false doctrine in the church who encourage and even tolerate sexual immorality and idolatry. And so if the church in Pergamum had those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, it showed they had tendencies towards both idolatry and immorality. You see, sexual immorality marked the whole culture of the ancient Roman Empire in which they found themselves living. It was simply taken for granted And the person who lived by biblical standards of purity was considered strange. Sounds familiar. And this is to paraphrase the Roman statesman Cicero, who lived in 106 to 43 BC, before Christ showed on the scene. Cicero said this, stated in Barclay, If there is anyone who thinks that young men should not be allowed the love of many women, he is extremely severe. I'm not able to deny the principle he stands on, but he contradicts not only with the freedom our age allows, but also with the customs and allowances of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? 
When did anyone find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that what is now allowed was not allowed? To keep from sexual immorality in that culture, you really had to swim against the current. That sounds very relevant to me. Pastor R. Rittenball said this on the sin of sexual immorality. He said, whoever practices this and does not repent of it will die the second death. I don't know if you remember last week, but Jesus holds out this promise to the church in Smyrna. Whoever is faithful until the end will not be hurt by the second death. And so later in Revelations, we find this to be true, that those who do not repent of the practice of sexual immorality will die the second death. What is sexual immorality? Uh, Sexual intimacy was set up to be between one biological man and one biological woman in the covenant of a God-honoring marriage. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And so he says they will not enter the kingdom of God. If they repent of it, great. But if this is a practice of a person, it will keep them out of the kingdom of God. It does not matter man or woman, young or old, married or unmarried. If you practice sexual perversion or sexual fraud, it is sin. It is wickedness. So Jesus continues. He says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And nobody knows exactly uh, a lot about this group. The title Nicolaitans, Nicolaos, literally means to conquer the people, to have this separatism. And according to ancient commentators, the Nicolaitans also approved of immorality. They approved of compromise. They were essentially fence straddlers. Have your cake and eat it too. And you see that both of these rebukes from the lips of Jesus have the same source that has polluted this church. A pollution of the pure gospel, the biblical worldview as taught by the word of God. It's not a gospel of self-denial, but one of self-gratification that they're living into. They've compromised. They thought they could be Christian and engage in the practices of the dominant society around them. The church at Pergamum had not been upholding sound biblical teaching and you see satan is a master at providing what we desire whether it be a status or wealth or a host of other wants so as long as he's successful at getting us to compromise and participate in ungodly activity and so jesus rebukes them and then he gives them this exhortation in verse 16 repent therefore Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent or else, Jesus says. This is an imperative command in the original language. It's not a soft suggestion. It's Jesus saying it's imperative that you repent because judgment is looming. And so Jesus warns the believers to stop and turn away from these teachings and practices. And if they do not, he will oppose them with the sharp, just, and severe power of his word. Listen, church, this is not an exhortation to unbelievers far from God, but also and especially to those living in disobedience that carry the name of Christ. Why does Jesus feel so strongly about this? No doubt it's that in the city of Pergamum, intermarriage with the pagan world was a real problem. You see, the problem wasn't that the church was in Pergamum. The problem was that Pergamum was now in the church. And Jesus says, I'll have none of that. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, God told his people, he said, I am a jealous God and you are to have no other gods before me. And Paul in the New Testament, he's writing to a church in Corinth and they're dealing with some issues like this with their culture. And and he says this in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And so Paul is writing to speak into the current context of these people in the culture and their living. And listen, church, this is not about religious piety, okay? 
This is about relational purity. Jesus is coming for a bride, which is his church, that is washed, that has clean hands and a pure heart. This is about relational purity that he speaks to this church and he speaks to us today in relation with the Lord God himself. In verse 17, he wraps up as he often does in each of these letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, to the one who is an overcomer, to the one who overcomes compromise, who does not bend their knee, who does not pollute their biblical worldview. I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The fact that this manna is described as hidden points to the mystery of eternal life. A mystery that is only even somewhat perceived through faith. And the hidden manna seems to be the bread of eternal life. It's, it's heavenly food, which is a secret from all who have not experienced the saving grace of Jesus. One commentator said, eating this manna also may be an allusion to participation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be a great banquet, Revelation tells us, in the end when Jesus comes to gather his church. And there's going to be this banquet far beyond anything we can imagine. The marriage supper of the Lamb where we will receive uh, the bread of life forever. And this is in vast contrast with the idolatrous banquets and sexual immorality taking place in these pagan temple rituals in the culture in which they live. What is this white stone? Uh, it would have been familiar uh, imagery to those in that time. Oftentimes it was given to those, uh, and it was your access. It was to come into a banquet, to come into a celebration. You would receive this with your name on it. Well, Jesus says this will have a name that nobody knows. It's going to be a new name because the word of God says that all those who are in Christ receive a new name. What is it that no one else knows it? It's because full disclosure of the things of God is reserved for those who share intimacy with him who know him and are known by him. And so would you pause just for a moment and invite the Spirit even now to give you ears to hear what he's speaking to us today, what he's speaking to you today. Are you willing, are we willing to hear the exhortation of Jesus to repent and address the compromise that might be present in our life today? Warren Wearsby said this, he said the relevance of these letters to the church is fitting today because of this. The churches are made up of people and human nature has not changed. From 95 AD to the year 2023, human nature remains the same. So why is this relevant to the church in America today? Before we get there, I think we must assess the culture, the worldview we find ourselves in as those in Pergamum found themselves in. And listen, I am certainly not anti-America. I have family members who have served for our continued privileges and freedoms out of the country, as many as you have served, and so thank you for that. However, could it be, could it be in the spiritual sense that our Western American culture is now the place where Satan has his throne? Could it be that this is now the place where Satan lives? I mean... We don't have to look hard to see what our cultural worldview is. Our culture that we live in, that we're all uh, moving and having our being in, uh, it calls right, wrong, and wrong, right. It calls good, bad, and bad, good. It says that men are women and women are men. It says that the truth is a lie and lies are the truth. It says that feelings are facts and that the facts are just feelings. It says that our biology is bogus and we can make up our own bogus biology. It treats our children like commodities and talks about our commodities like they're our children. Listen, this is just the culture we're living in. This is the world, this is the worldview in which we find ourselves living in. And so the question begged by the letter to the church at Pergamum is this. Where is the church today in danger of compromise? Or where have we let the world creep in? To, and how, how can we repent of that? What's the difference between being a relevant church and being one that has diluted or poisoned the gospel that has not taken God at his word? 
So where's the church in danger of compromise? Listen, many of you already know this, but churches and denominations in general uh, in America have compromised the word of God in our day. It didn't happen overnight. It's been a slow fade as they've given themselves permission to speak above the word of God and speak into its relevance or lack thereof in their opinion in the times in which we find ourselves living. They've compromised, particularly in the areas of gender and sexuality and social justice. You see, Christians in our community, and you may be these Christians, Christians in our community are having to pull away from lifelong churches because their denominations are affirming lifestyles and principles about human sexuality and marriage that are not in line with the word of God. And compromising the authority of scripture has and always will cause immense pain and confusion. Jesus was warning Pergamum, and he's warning us today. Where have we let the world creep in? How can we repent? In a study called The State of Theology that was released last year in 2022 by Lioneer Ministries and Lifeway Research, they poll the entire country and they compare their findings based on the average U.S. adult versus the uh, average U.S. Uh, evangelical, those who identify as evangelical. Then there's criteria that identify you as evangelical. You can read the fullness. I can't read the whole thing to you. It would take too long. But here's some of the findings last year. It says, while evangelicals are more likely than U.S. adults in general to affirm a biblical sexual ethic, that means to have some sort of morals on sex, in the areas of gender identity and homosexuality, a significant rise of unbiblical worldview is apparent amongst evangelicals. The rise of unbiblical views among American evangelicals on the subjects of gender and sexuality may indicate the influence of a secular worldview that is making greater inroads into the church. And listen, before all that is said, at the end of the survey, the survey revealed this. An increase in evangelicals who believe God is pleased with worship that comes from outside the Christian faith. An increase in evangelicals who deny Jesus' divinity. It revealed an increase in evangelicals who believe the Bible is not literally true for us. The study revealed an increase in evangelicals who believe that religious faith is a subjective experience rather than an objective reality. This is those who identify as evangelical, Christ followers. So what's the difference between being a relevant church and being one that has diluted and poisoned the gospel, who's sold a worldview that is not that of God's word. You see, the word of God is always relevant. It must be upheld and simultaneously worked out into our worldview, into our lives, so that it speaks with grace and truth into the days in which we find ourselves living. A compromised church is one that has a polluted worldview. This is the action of syncretism. This is the action of syncretism. What is syncretism? It's co-opting Jesus into the worldview of my culture. That's what syncretism is at, at its basic level. It's, it's taking Jesus and trying to fit him into my cultural worldview. Trying to mash it together, right? It's the holding of a hybrid worldview versus a purely biblical worldview. And this is from another survey, another nationwide survey that was completed uh, and was released in May 22 of last year. This is of American Christian pastors. This isn't the church. This isn't adults who identify as evangelicals. Those are those, these are those who hold the title of pastor in the American Christian church. It showed that a majority of pastors lack a biblical worldview. We could stop there. In fact, just slightly more than a third, 37% possess a biblical worldview, and the majority, 62%, hold a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. As veteran researcher and CRC director of research, George Barna, maybe you've heard of Barna, he explained it's just further evidence that the culture is influencing the American church much more than the Christian churches are influencing the culture. That sounds a lot like Pergamum. And Dr. Michael Goheen, uh, in a lecture uh, that I heard in seminary, this is from 2018, he said this, he said, most Christians are in the majority of becoming more and more de-Christianized by all sorts of unconscious pressure. Paganism now holds all the most valuable advertising space. This is 2018. 
He said there are some dangers that are present. One of them is this, that we have a myth of a Christian culture or the notion or myth that we used to have or still have one. And when this is our functional thinking, we let our guard down to compromise. Or this myth that we have a neutral or safe culture in America. We live in a neo-paganistic culture in our country. It's beyond post-Christian. He said Western modernity may be a much deadlier foe than any previous counter-religious force in human history. This is 2018. Back to the report about the worldview of pastors. He said the latest report found that the prevailing worldview among pastors is best described as syncretism. The blending of ideas and applications from a variety of worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. The lowest of all the categories that it found that might have been expected to be at the top of the list said this, beliefs and behaviors related to the Bible, truth, and morality. Only 39% of all pastors have a biblical worldview in this area. Barna offered a note of hope in spite of the data. You cannot fix anything unless you know it's broken, he commented. Other recent research we've conducted suggests most pastors actually believe they're theologically in tune with the Bible. Perhaps these findings will cause many of them to take a careful look at how well their beliefs and behavior conform to a biblical principles and commands. Listen, church, assimilation with the culture to relieve ourselves of pressure has always been a problem. We see it in Pergamum. We see it today. There are internal and external pressures at play, just as there were for the church in Pergamum. Internally, there's false doctrine, there's syncretism, there's this meshing of worldviews that pollutes uh, the word of God. And externally, there's persecution and there's slander if you remain exclusive to Christ alone. And this persecution and slander is increasing, yes, even today of Christians around the world and in the West and in America. If you remain exclusive to Christ alone. But listen, I think you would agree most people are okay with Jesus as a wise teacher that lived and taught a good moral life. Or one man showing a part of the truth that makes up a small part of the many paths to truth. Or they're okay with Jesus as a way to gain knowledge and goodness and love and your best life. But it all changes when you declare Jesus exclusively as the way and the truth and the life. He's the only way into life-transforming relationship with the God of the universe. And that is the God who does not share his worship with anything lesser. And so we live in this day, church, we live in this day where there's both pressure from within and without the church to validate everybody in the name of love. We've elevated the acceptance of people's feelings and preferences over what God clearly says in his word. And listen, those people, them out there, that is not your enemy. We wage war with principalities in the spiritual, in the heavenlies. And a lot are even comfortable with you saying you're a Christian. But if you don't validate their opinion and their truth, then you become a bigot and are hateful and are a hypocrite. Let me ask you. Is it loving? Is it loving if you look out your your neighbor's window one day and your neighbor has this yard that they're so passionate about? Uh, Man, they take so much pride in it. It's part of who they are. You know those people. Don't look at somebody if they're in the room. But you look out in your neighbor's yard and you look through your window and you see something. Then all of a sudden you realize that their yard is full of rattlesnakes. And they're hard to see because they're blending in with the grass. But you see it. And you run down and you walk outside and you see your neighbor. And they're so proud of their yard, their identity's tied up in it. And so you're nervous and you don't want to say anything negative about their yard. They put so much energy into it. You don't want to confront them and and you might offend them. And so you just remain silent. If you speak up, you might be considered something other than a good neighbor. And so you overlook, you overlook the yard full of death and you put on a smile and you affirm to them they have a nice yard and you love it. 
and they should be able to enjoy it as they feel they should. Now, is that loving or is that hateful? Listen, friends, we we are tempted on a regular, if not daily basis, to compromise the word of God, even just a pinch, just a pinch. And the enemy, he is a liar. He's the deceiver. And so he tries to lead us to compromise and to give in to temptation, to idolatry and to sexual immorality through worldviews that we're surrounded by that contradict the word of God. One of the ways is, is through the worldview of materialism. He tempts us to buy things that you know you really can't afford to put on a front, to put on a show in the way that we appear and the things we have because that matters the most. Or maybe he tempts us to compromise God's word through hedonism. That's the pursuit of pleasure. That's you should have what makes you feel good. You should do what feels good to you. Maybe it's that late night Netflix binge. Maybe it's those steamy adult novels you're reading because they just have all the feels. I'm not hurting anybody, am I? Or maybe it's that uh, he, he tempts us to compromise through that music that we convince ourselves really is not influencing our thoughts and our words and our reactions. Or maybe he's tempting us to compromise by visiting those social media pages that you've convinced yourself, well, they're not really pornographic. But all the while, you know at a soul level they're devouring your heart. Or maybe it's with the simple temptation to live for the moment. He tempts us through perverted gospels to compromise the true gospel. You see, the devil's okay with you believing parts of the gospel as long as he can get you to pollute it. And so we buy into these perverted gospels like the prosperity gospel and the social gospel and the reform gospel and, and Oprah's gospel. Everyone's got a gospel now, and the devil's fine with that as long as he can get us to compromise the true gospel, the word of God. Or maybe he tempts us to compromise a biblical worldview through secularism, through politics and policy being the answer to all things, that it's okay to separate my faith from other areas of your life. Or maybe the temptation is to compromise in the worldview of liberalism. Follow your heart. Live your truth. Tolerance is love. And so he comes at us in many different forms. But listen, faithfulness to Jesus does not compromise doctrine and the true true word of God. Church family, following Jesus will take all, all of our obedience, all of our courage, and all the discipline that we have. God spoke to his people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. He speaks to us today. Time and time again throughout scripture, we see uh, that he says to his people, he says, if you see the wickedness, if you see the culture around you, these pagan uh, cultures, if you see them infiltrating the church and you tolerate it, I will cut you off. Judgment is at hand. This is the word of God. It's not mine. And somehow... Somehow we've bought a lie in much of the church in America that the fabled 11th commandment is greater than the original 10. What is it? Thou shall be nice. We take the commandment, thou shall be nice, thou shall be tolerant, thou shall be affirming, and we hold it above the other 10. It's not even a real commandment. Pastor Alan Jackson, he pastor, not the music artist, he said this, Recently in a sermon, he said, we've stopped being overcomers and have become a church filled with overlookers. He continued on, he said, the reason we feel inadequate to address it at a church level is because we've been overlooking sin in our own homes and family systems for far too long. Listen, church, at a foundational level, I believe we've simply become comfortable with compromise. Compromise with false doctrine and immoral living being tolerated and affirmed and practiced within the people who go by the name of Christ. And listen, our flesh faces the lie daily to go with the flow, don't rock the boat, do whatever it takes to fit in. 
And these are the lies that the world wants us to believe and buy into. So why do we justify compromise? Because of comfort? Maybe because of conformity. Our culture is trying to squeeze us into a mold of its liking. Maybe it's conflict avoidance. Because of cowardliness, we don't have the courage to stand for godliness. Maybe because it's too costly. Because it might cost us our lives. Be faithful even to death, Jesus told the church in Smyrna. Maybe it's because it's just convenient. Man, it's too inconvenient to go there. Or maybe it's because we're living in comparison with others. Listen, the moment you begin to justify even a pinch of compromise, cut that thought off. Tear that weed out by the root. Because it often comes across discreetly as a rationale to justify ourselves. They can't be serious. I mean, I love Jesus, but living like that is so out of touch with the times. That's so old-fashioned. That's Old Testament Christianity. Or maybe, well, I think I'll be okay. You know, only radical people live like that. I mean, it's just a little white lie. What's it going to hurt? I mean, what I'm doing, it's pretty tame compared to most things out there. I mean, in our relationship, we've crossed the line sexually, so there's really no going back now. It's, it can't get any worse. I mean, I know, I know we aren't married, but we've already been married, so boundaries aren't the same in our situation. I mean, of course I don't agree with some of the things in the show, but everyone's talking about it. I don't want to miss out. Yes, I know what the Bible says, but it's just the right decision financially speaking because paying two rents is ridiculous right now. We have to move in together. I know I'm no saint. It's just my guilty pleasure to deal with. Listen, friends. Be very careful when you stand to argue or your right to do or have or to justify your compromise against the word of God that that something or someone does not actually have you in your heart. Because what captures the longing of our hearts will control the way that we live. And God's word is clear that anything that's captured our hearts before the Lord Jesus is an idol. So what should be our response today? In conclusion to the clear word of God to the church in Pergamum and to us today, the response is repent and be transformed. The Apostle John, who penned this revelation, also wrote this in 1 John 2. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Listen, church, I believe this. We lose our dynamic difference as the people of God through the power of the gospel when we allow compromise into our lives and therefore into the church. We miss the corporate nature. We often miss the corporate nature of sin because we make it all about the individual. And it is, we should ask God to search our hearts and be in that right relationship. But listen, there is a corporate nature to sin. And we are part of the church. It starts with a few weeds that we overlook because what are they hurting? Or maybe we'll offend someone if we begin to pull at them. And then before you know it, the truth of God's holy word that has produced new life is choked out by the invasive nature of the world and the flesh and the devil. Here's the bottom line. This is the bottom line to the church in Pergamum and to us today. Repent and be all in or you're not in at all. This is the word of God to us today, to the church in Pergamum. Will we have ears to hear? Listen, brothers and sisters, I want you to know the seriousness and deadliness of compromise with sin because I love you and I love Jesus and I love his church. And some of you, some of you may leave here today and think, well, that didn't feel very good. And I'm okay with that because when God calls us to repentance, it never feels good we're being confronted to deal decisively with our self-centeredness in whatever it is however listen to this you can leave here today filled with hope and the assurance that you have been declared victorious that you are an overcomer in Christ Jesus and you can live into that reality today
That is how you can leave here. Dave Gilbert, one of our own here at the Church of the Nazarene, said this. He said, God did not give us this prophecy, this revelation, so that we would be smarter, but that we would be surrendered. To declare Jesus as Lord and King, to follow in the way as a disciple, means we surrender. We offer all we have to his lordship and authority, and we offer no part of ourselves to the pagan culture that we find ourselves in. It's easy, friends, to let culture dilute our values if we're passive in our discipleship to Jesus. But listen to me today. This is my exhortation. Resist conformity to the pattern of this world and be transformed, as Paul said, by the renewing of your mind according to what? According to the word of God. We must, listen, we must cultivate the habit of denying ourselves daily. And if we're honest, it's fallen out of fashion in our contemporary Christianity. But it is the way of Jesus, the only way. Jesus said, all who would come after me, deny yourselves, that is your flesh. Take up your cross daily, that is your surrender. And follow me, that is your Lord and your Savior. Would you stand with me as we prepare to pray and respond to the word of God this morning? Will we, as those who are God's people in 2023, repent of compromise? Will we address the weeds of compromise by the roots before the life that is real life is choked out of us? And yes, church, listen, we must be a welcoming, safe space for all people to come and hear about the good news of Jesus. But we must not change our message or our convictions to accommodate and tolerate sin. Listen, to those in Christ, we know there is hope today and hope has a name. And he holds out a glorious promise to all of us. To those who are victorious, to those who overcome, I'll give you the bread of heaven. I'll give you a new name. You will be welcomed into my intimate presence forevermore. Jesus, we ask you to speak to us. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying this morning. We thank you, Lord, for, for these words. We hear your, your words of admonition. We hear your warning. We hear your call to repent. Lord, would you give us a heart obediently uh, that would respond to your word accordingly. As we worship God, would our eyes be turned away from that which is displeasing to you? Would you search us, God? Would you see if our worldview, if our biblical worldview has been polluted or diluted by the culture in which we live, God? And would you give us clean hands and a pure heart as we fix our eyes on you? We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. When you're done listening today, please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.